As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Muddy Knees Media. The Black Friday slash pre-Christmas sales are well underway and from today until Friday the 4th of December, you can get yourself a subscription to The Athletic for £1 a month for an entire calendar year. That means unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a breaking news service, exclusive Q&As with athletic staff and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts for just £1 per month. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today... Oli has his light bulb moment with Edison as his second half switch sees United turn it on against Saints and continue their current away streak. Elsewhere, Jose Piddles on the Chelsea party, City get their usual 5-0 win over Burnley and Klopp takes on BT Sport after failing to BT Brighton. How much trouble are Liverpool in ahead of their Champions League clash midweek with Ajax? We'll be talking about that and all the rest of the big topics in football on this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello there, listener. It's the 30th of November 2020. Holy cow, it's literally December next. And we've got for you today, Daniel Story of the Iron Football 365. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Also with us, Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. Dom. Hi, James. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And Sasha Gurionov joins us from Oco Sport. Hi, James. Hello, Sasha. Woof. Did you enjoy the weekend, Sash? Uh, mixed. Mixed. Um... I see. I think uh, Liverpool again, uh, Maid and Var. Uh, mm. I did enjoy Cavani's appearance, though. Cavani managed mm. to make a difference to a game, having only completed 10 passes in it, uh, which I thought was really, really impressive. Um, so very much uh, an impressive comeback from Manchester United from 2-0 down at half-time, away from home, something that City are completely incapable of. That's so very true. What most impressed you this weekend, Dom? I really enjoyed... <laughs> Um, Wolverhampton Wanderers performance just now against Arsenal I thought they were superb from what I saw weirdly I actually enjoyed the cancellation of both Tottenham and Chelsea's approaches at Stamford Bridge I find that really intriguing game I don't usually go for nil-nil tactical uh, games but actually that 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 was interesting I thought and a, and a good one to watch I also enjoyed the fact that my own team managed to lose on Friday so I didn't actually have to worry about anything over the weekend 
Right, indeed. So Crystal Palace will come on to that very shortly. Uh, Daniel, what what made it to the top of your winners list? Yeah, of what's left, I think I I enjoy both Everton and Leeds, but in particular Leeds is. I like the way that they seem. We've we've talked about it here before, but the way they seem to approach every game as if, or every opponent as if they're the same, and they're going to imprint what they do on you rather than reacting to what you try and do to them. And um, they are a phenomenal team to watch at the moment. The sheer number of shots and chances created, particularly away from home against supposedly better teams, is is great. Mm. We'll talk about all of that and more, I should think, in the course of today's show. As Tom was hinting there, this is just after Arsenal had lost a two-one at home to Wolves. The first win for Wolverhampton Wanderers away to Arsenal since the 70s. Specifically, is it 1979? I know that message in a bottle by the police was number one at the time. So, yeah, that would make it 79. Table looking very interesting now after 10 rounds. Obviously, some teams have games in hand. Top four separated by only three points. And if Leicester beat Fulham on Monday night, we could have the top three all level on 21 points as it stands. It's Spurs and Liverpool on that number with Chelsea a couple of points behind and Leicester three points off the top. Then there's a mass of teams between Saints in fifth place and Newcastle in 14th, all within a win of each other. And West Brom have moved out of the bottom three after getting their first win of the season. Where do we begin? Possibly with the most exciting game of the weekend, which was Saints-Man United. United were 2-0 down. Goals from Bednarik and then a James Ward-Prowse free kick and then came roaring back after the half-time substitution of Edinson Cavani. It looked like it was going to be a James Ward-Prowse afternoon, but instead Cavani grabs all the headlines, as you were saying, Sash. Yeah, and I think it, it, it was interesting the way that Cavani was very much aided by, I think, Southampton's general sloppiness at the back, uh, which we actually saw in the first half, but United couldn't capitalise. Um, I mean, you, ha- you have the situation where McCarthy passes to Greenwood and then Greenwood also missed an open goal. Uh, so there was sloppiness there. However, you know, Southampton were pretty clinical in converting uh, the chances that they had. I quite like the tweet from Adam Hurry, the Ward-Prowse territory now officially recognised as, as an autonomous region. Mm. Um, but I think um, what we saw in the second half is mistakes um, at the back were punished by someone like Cavani. Of course, he gave United aerial threat, but at the same time, he set up the first goal with a fine cross. Again, uh, Kyle Walker-Peters just drifted away from Bruno Fernandes. Uh, we saw as well on the second goal uh, that Vestigo didn't come out. And finally, on the final goal, Cavani very cleverly exploited the space and made the run between Bednarek and Vestigo. So effectively, you have a team that perhaps wasn't fully uh, functioning at the back and Cavani just just destroyed them, uh, which I thought was absolutely excellent attacking play. What's what's the difference of having Cavani to all the other attackers that the Man United have got? I think they, I mean, he, he, he desperately wants to get both in the penalty area and between the goalposts. You know, Marcus Rashford and Mason Greenwood did have touches in the penalty area and, and Rashford does pretty regularly. But if you look at where they come, most of them tend to be on the edge of the box. So pullbacks or... Um, kind of dribbling across the face of goal and looking to shoot. Whereas Cavani, he wants to be a, a first touch finisher. You know, he wants crosses. He wants balls into feet. Um, he, he, you know, he, he's not a just a poacher. You can you can do excellent work outside the area and did so for for the first goal. But he he seems to have. I think we talk about mentality too much. I think it's a bit of a, a an easy cop out analysis wise. But there does seem to be a real desire to get very close to goal and get shots off, which is. It, it might seem harsh on Anthony Martial, but it does seem very different to how Manchester United play when he is playing. 
Um, Martial's not had a shot on target yet this season in the league. Cavani comes into the side and and scores two in 45 minutes. It, it, the and difference is night and day. And mm, an assist, yeah. Yeah, 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 night and day. Remarkable, as Fabrizio Romano points out. Not bad for a guy who was a free agent until 54 days ago. Dom, did you see this coming or are you, are you a bit taken aback at how effective Cavani is proving? I, I thought I didn't think this transfer would work. Uh, if I'm honest, I, I thought it it was a player past his best, a player that had really been making hay in in, in Ligue 1 for for so long that, that the, you know we like to assume that the Premier League is a better standard and and he'd be tested better uh, and and potentially nullified better. But actually, you're seeing an elite player here. Uh, uh, his pedigree is 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 very evident, and it may have taken him a bit of time to. To bring himself up to match fitness and to and to match speed, but I wonder whether today and I know he's he's obviously scored already in the in in the league, but I think I wonder if today is is the day that that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer decides actually he needs to be in my first choice eleven that his his presence and and his aura really to be honest and 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 how it makes defenders feel to be confronting him. Um, as a, as a very different type of of player to to Martial and 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 Rashford etc. Green, Greenwood, I think it just gives them a focal point, um, a real presence. And, and actually, you know, half time today might actually be a, a moment for Manchester United because Cavani comes on and has that amazing impact second half. But Henderson's also come on for the injured De Gea, mm. and we seem to have recurring themes at United in, in recent times. And one of them is these constant questions as to whether David De Gea is, is quite the player that he once was. Well, Dean Henderson, who's a hugely, hugely talented and confident young man, has now got an opportunity potentially um, to stake his, his own claim for that number one spot at, at Manchester United and and maybe, maybe make that, that whole argument redundant. And I think I think the United goalkeeping situation it was the case of waiting for De Gea to effectively lose his spot because I think also if you look at United they spend I think they're paying the four keepers something like five hundred six hundred k a week they need to sort out the situation you cannot have Henderson sitting on huge money sitting on the bench and as Dom said you know he's a very confident young man and uh, you know as as we heard from numerous sources and I think once he gets this opportunity um, if Solskjaer sticks with him uh, I think he will be quite hard to dislodge. And every time he's come in this season, even like in the League Cup, he's actually made a difference. So he's really stepped up. De Gea, of course, injuring himself in a in a vain attempt to keep out that absolute missile of a free kick from James Ward-Prowse, the latest one he's put away. He's now up to nine in the Premier League. The only Englishman to score more in the division, David Beckham. Yeah, I'm not saying that England are going to win the European Championship by Jack Grealish winning fouls and James Ward-Prowse scoring the resultant free kicks, but... Um, it feels a tactic because his dead ball delivery, and not just from from free kicks, um, his corner for the for the first Southampton goal was brilliant. He, right. what I really liked about it is that he sent that to the front post and clearly saw a weakness in Manchester United. And the next three corners he took, he put in exactly the same spot. He right. he clearly aimed for the same spot and he hit it. And the standard of corner taking in the Premier League frustrates me and others, I'm sure, hugely. The the kind of first man principle, but he is. He's a remarkable free kick taker. It's it, it maddened me in the last international break because he, when he came on for England, he didn't take set pieces, which is a nonsense to my mind. If he's on the pitch, he has to take them. Richard Jolly pointing out that he has scored as many goals from direct free kicks this season as every other Premier League player put together. That's an incredible stat. Three, so three is that right? Yeah. Three, yeah. yeah. I was just going to ask when did 
Wasp Prowse become this, you know, England saviour almost now? Because at one stage we were having a conversation about what a hard midfield he is, how snide he is. And now we're actually talking about his free kicks. I think under Hasenhutl, he, 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 I mean, he was always a tidy midfielder. He played, he, he liked to put a tackle in, but he also kind of shuttled the ball around. It feels like Hasenhutl was really turning him into a sort of box-to-box player that lets Romeo really just sit and do that job. Um, and, you know, even from open play, he's had more shots this season than normal. So he's actually getting forward. He scored from open play, I think, against Everton. Um, so, yeah, he just, he, he, he looks a really, really good box-to-box player. And that's the one position that England don't really have at the moment. They have this collection of attacking midfielders and then the sitters, you know, Winks and Diary plays there or Henderson, but they don't really have that box-to-box player. So, yeah, I like him for that role as a squad player, I suspect, rather than a starter immediately. That's what Hasenhutl has done to Ward Prowse. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, meanwhile, has transformed Man United into a relentless winning machine on the road. They're the first side in Premier League history to win eight straight away games and the first team as well to win four consecutive away games from coming back from uh, being behind in each of them, which is pretty phenomenal stuff. It was a bitter pill to swallow for anyone who might have been preparing, you know, vaguely snide social media posts about <laughs> Ollie's record compared Daniel to other yeah. managers. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I've not, I, I'm not going to scale back what I think about Ollie. So I don't think he's a, a, you know, I've said on this podcast many times, Manchester United have got good players; they will win matches. Um, that's not the point. Um, I don't think he's the best. I think he's at the best club for him. I don't think he'll manage better anywhere else. But I don't think he's the best man for that. But one thing he has done repeatedly is proven that he's not lost the dressing room, that the players haven't given up on him because they do still fight. They do still show resilience when they go behind. That that might be because of competition for places as much as anything. You know, I, you can quite easily lose your place in a Manchester United side. Speak to Paul Pogba about that. Um, but yeah, there's clearly a, a, an inbuilt resilience there that you have to give the manager credit for installing because... Um, you know, other managers get credit for it as well. So we shouldn't shy away from that just because I don't think he's the best man for the job. Mm. All right, Daniel. Wednesday, we'll get another chapter of the Is He the Right Manager for Man United discussion uh, as they take on Paris Saint-Germain. And it'll be fascinating to see if Cavani makes the starting lineup for that game. That's a great subplot to that tie, isn't it? Um, and it would it would really put out a, a huge statement for for United to if they could complete a a double in this group stage over PSG, given PSG's you know getting to the final got to the final last last season. Um, I still think there's an issue, obviously, with consistency with with United, um, but maybe now, <laughs> maybe now they they can certainly go into that tie confident they're they're they they sort of re redress the balance back in that group with that convincing win over Istanbul last week. So mm-hmm. they can go in with a, with a certain amount of confidence and momentum and, and uh, hopefully it will take them past Paris Saint-Germain. Mm, they need a point from their last two games, this against the Parisians and then RB Leipzig on the final match day. PSG coming into this after a 2-2 draw with Bordeaux, dropping points for the second straight week. They got beaten by Monaco last weekend. And uh, having a bit of a title race, actually, for once in Ligue 1. Uh, we'll get a full preview on that in Tuesday's Euro show from Julian Laurence. Uh, after this, though, let's move on to more of your Sunday action. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Greetings from Sunday night again, listener. We have just finished watching Arsenal Wolves. Quite a thrilling finale as uh, Arsenal applied pressure on their visitors who were set to come away and indeed came away with their first win away to Arsenal since 1979. 
It was Neto who opened the scoring. Gabriel then equalised for uh, the Gunners. And then uh, Podense made it 2-1 and thus it stayed. Triori was a force of nature. He's back to that kind of kind of performance. Uh, although he did pick up a yellow card, I thought, rather harshly for simulation. And uh, well done, Wolves. I thought they were superb. Bear in mind that they they lose Raul Jimenez so early in the game to a horrible, horrible head injury. And he he's, he's stretched it off after, I think it was a 10-minute delay while they were sorting that out. And for them to sort of, to, to recover composure after seeing a, that happen to a teammate and such a key player in their system, I, I thought they were the sensational on the counter-attack. I mean... We saw the best of Traore. Every time I looked up, it was either Traore tearing down the right or Pedenzo or Neto. They were so much pace and invention through the centre. I thought Cody was superb at the back and 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 almost talking talking his players through the game, guiding them through it because it, it did become a, a the the end. It was a, a case of a heaving heaving to control and then retain that that two one lead. But absolutely sensational performance. A, a it just really re- restates the class that Wolves have got. That Matt Sparrow summed it up quite nicely on Twitter as Jurabchin one, Mendes two, which is uh, <laughs> sums up the uh, the situations at both those clubs. But Wolves, when they're like that, when they play like that, are, are a force of nature. They're superb. Now, I think we overlook just how much players can be affected by that sort of thing. Um, you know, not just the player involved in terms of when he comes back and. Um, kind of recovering after serious injury. I remember a, a Forest player, Chris Cohen, kind of reminding people after an ACL injury that he he literally had to learn to run again and then learn to trust himself tackling because if he didn't trust himself, then he was more likely to get injured, and that was an incredibly hard process to go through. But also the the teammates around them because it you know these are people who spend a heck of a lot of time with each other, and when you see an injury that isn't just serious in a a kind of sporting context, but in a real life context of, you know, this is not how long is he out for? This is, hang on a minute, how bad is this? Mm. Um, yeah, all power to them for playing exactly as, as as Dom says. It's kind of managing to put that back of their mind and playing this wonderful, carefree, aesthetically pleasing football. As for Arsenal, this game was, was pointed out at regular intervals, marked a year on from uh, Unai Emery departing the club. Uh, and... As such, it's quite a useful marker to, to see how far we've come or, or not come. A lot of Arsenal fans on Arsenal Twitter talking about who's the problem now. It's, we've gone through Lacazette, Pepe, Mustafi, Ozil as potentially the reason why we can't get it together. Who is it now? Aubameyang seemed a particularly popular response. Is it the system um, now? Because, I mean, from what I understand... Um He's trying to get them organised and, you know, cut out the errors. Yeah, they keep on conceding at home. Uh, individual mistakes today. Today from the goalkeeper who spilled a shot for the second. Uh, a lot of the football this season has really been sub-fun. I mean, it's they're not good to watch. Uh, five defeats in ten. Uh, you know, where is this going? I know there will be comparisons between Emery and, and Arteta because one came before the other. Um, but they're completely opposite managers and Emery basically tried to kind of go through without a philosophy and hope that everything would, would work enough that individual talent would come through and Arteta's version is I'm going to rip everything up and build it from scratch and therefore that will take time but you know and, and he should get that time for now but there comes a point when you do want to see kind of milestones and you know signposts along that road that things are going well and at the moment they're not really traveling forward or traveling anywhere at all positively um, well, we, they're getting worse and that is a bit worrying 
we, we've we've talked about Arsenal lack of creativity, all these issues in recent weeks. Is there anything new to add from this game on that subject? No, I Not don't so think much. so. No, I think it's mm. it's the same. It, it, it's it's how it's how vulnerable they look when a team comes with a an equally robust way of playing, but one that they have perfected or near perfected in in Wolves's case, compared to Arsenal's kind of budget half version of it and uh, it doesn't matter how talented your players are and Wolves is Wolves happen to be have some very talented players but if you've got a system that everybody knows what they're doing and a system that everybody doesn't the perfect system will will win eight nine times out of ten seems fair Arsenal have rapid Vienna arriving on Thursday in the Europa League Arsenal already through to the last 32 but this game as you, you might have heard due to be the first one to see the return of fans as a uh, Tier 2 venue, Arsenal will sell 2,000 tickets to gold and premium members only for the clash and then will then hold ballots uh, for the future matches, starting with the Burnley clash. That'll be interesting. Dom, tell us why you enjoyed Chelsea Spurs so much. Nil-nil. Jose spoiling the 1,000th game celebrations at Stamford Bridge. <laughs> Get the bunting out. Um, I enjoyed it because these were two teams... Who, who were riding a crest of a wave coming into the fixture? They, they, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant form. Um, but I, I think I thought it showed, it showed, it demonstrated Spurs' newfound resilience. It, it, it looked like a, a, a well-drilled Mourinho team um, that equally able to nullify, but but had a threat on the counter attack, had a threat on the break, and, and indeed, you know, had Kurt Zuma makes his error in stoppage time right at the end, they might have nicked a win. They're probably the, the the more threatening team actually up, up to half time as well. Equally, Chelsea have been sweeping all before them for the last month. They've they've won six on the bounce in all competitions. Games that you looked at and thought, yeah, they they should win this, but they needed to, given I think they'd had a couple of goalless draws prior to that. I I just think it's for them. They 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 did show some bite um, in the second half, in particular, Mason Mount shot that Tammy Abraham. If if Olivier Giroud had been on the pitch for maybe for longer, and and it had been him on the end of those crosses from Reese James, Chelsea could well have won that game. Um, but but I also think it's admirable that they 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 shut out Son and and Kane. Um, that's the first I think it's the first team in the Premier League to do that since September. Um, I think I think Mendy now has more clean sheets and. Than any player in the Premier League this season, he's only he's only played six matches um, in in the league. I, I think he's these games showcase him and Thiago Silva so much and and the progress they've made. But they just look like two really good units, two really good teams, and they came together. They cancelled each other out today, but actually, I think they pose a real real threat in this title race. And Chelsea just hovering two points off the top at the moment, but but they're very much in it. And Spurs look look really good. Both ends mm. of the pitch. Didn't look Spursy at all. I thought, uh, for me, what was interesting um, in the way was how Chelsea were going to deal with uh, Kane dropping in or fooling, dragging out central defenders and then getting the ball played over the top. And I thought this is where Kante had a very good game. And every time Kane went wide of that position, Kate Kovacic and Mount helped him out really well. So I think this is the reason why they managed to nullify it because I thought it was really galling last week against, against Manchester City how far up the pitch 
Rodri was every time. So there's a huge gap where Kane could drop in and cause problems for, for City. And that's how they, conce- they conceded the two goals. And on the other hand, um, it was interesting how, I think Michael Cox mentioned last week, how Sissoko was dropping in the channel, in the right channel for Spurs. And I thought he was doing this again here. And Dombele was dropping in Hobig. So they were quite... Um, sort of de- defensively minded there as well. Uh, Joe Roden had a couple of mistakes in him, uh, which uh, Chelsea nearly took advantage of. I think Werner should not be uh, wandering offside in the 10th minute. Um, so they were kind of cautious. And this is what I think Lampard referred to after the game and Jose as well. Uh, but I thought Jose threw in a nice barb. Uh, normally, a draw here is a positive result, but my dressing room is not happy. So he's kind of accusing, I think, uh, Lampard of being a little bit risk-averse here. But at the same time, look, mate, your, your team had one shot on target. I, 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 you're being a bit cynical there, I, I think, Sasha. <laughs> Daniel? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the reality is is that with, with Liverpool's, you know, football is to us entertainment, but to the managers, it's it's obviously far more serious business than that. And, and the reality is that Liverpool's draw on Saturday lunchtime meant that if you'd have offered both managers a nil-nil draw before the game, they would have probably taken it. To play one of the potential title rivals and not drop any points on the top of the league is is a weekend well done. Uh, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank on Sky kind of explained it well at half-time. It was one of the, it's one of those results that if it's a draw how good a result of it cannot really be judged now. It can be judged in three games. If both teams mm. go on and, and win two of the next three games against difficult opponents, it's a great point. If they then go on a bit of a slump and maybe kind of go back into their shells a little bit, maybe not. And also Jose can sell this point as a win as yeah, well because when absolutely. they lost to Stamford Bridge last season, they were shambolic. And this yeah. is when uh, Mourinho, after the game, was uh, grumpy Soros and he was basically like, ah, I cannot wait until the end of the season. There's nothing I can do with this. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, he was, he was just he was awful. And um, so now they come there and they have this really competent performance. And now they, they're up against a progressing side and they, they achieve a good result. And as he pointed out as well after the game, they're top of the league. Indeed so. Uh, are they going to be top of their Champions League group? We'll find that out this midweek when they take on Sevilla. They're currently level uh, with the Spaniards, the Andalusians, uh, on points. Uh, and they're going to be taking them on, of course, away at sanchez Pijuan. Spurs also in action midweek, or at least on Thursday, when they take on Lask, who are three points behind them. Spurs not yet certain of their place in the last 32. All right, much more to come from the weekend uh, after this. Uh, let's uh, salute Papa Boobajob. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So, in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your 4 plus fold acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg on an exclusive exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus begambleaware.org. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Sunday afternoon, listener bringing sad news that Papa Bubba Job had passed away at the age of just 42 after a long illness. Former Senegal, Fulham, Portsmouth midfielder, most famous probably, I think for most of us, uh, for one of the all-time great World Cup upsets in 2002 when the opening game of the World Cup saw Senegal beating the holders France thanks to his goal. And they've got two striding up in the centre here. Bouba Drop is there! Oh, and Bouba Drop is there! And Senegal had scored the first goal of the 2002 World Cup! After half an hour's play, Papa Bouba Drop! I remember that game. It felt like my very small generation's um, Cameroon-Argentina in that, uh, I, you know, I had family friends who also loved football and were but were two three years older than me and they would talk about that Cameroon team and that game and this felt like that for for my age group and this team of players who even in 2002 you didn't know an awful lot about you know football was growing as this global sport by then but the age I was kind of 16 you didn't know all those players and that felt really magical in a way that you don't really get anymore and he was Mm. yeah he was a kind of iconic member of that team. Yeah, we, we got to know him, of course, a bit better afterwards when he, he uh, joined up at various uh, Premier League sides, and notably probably Fulham, where he was known as the wardrobe. Intriguingly, he was, of course, a lion with Senegal, so he was a lion and a wardrobe, and just, you know, <laughs> which was the, the way to... <laughs> but uh, astonishing to see him go so early. Uh, by all accounts, an absolutely lovely chap, as well as a man uh, capable of hitting the ball with quite phenomenal force. Pembridge, Booba Jop, what a goal! Today I had that possibly Liverpool uh, weren't quite familiar with those players either, given that they signed Duf and Diao, who were catastrophic at Liverpool. <laughs> Fair enough, Sasha. Well, really, really sad news to hear that he has uh, passed on. And uh, we will now move on to Saturday's games in the Premier League. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Saturday saw... Big game at the Amex. Lots of controversy as Brighton drew 1-1 with that late Groose penalty with champions Liverpool. Sasha, are you going to have a bit of a rant here? Not, not really, no. Um, no? No, I mean, it's... Um, I, first of all, I think Liverpool's performance was far from perfect. Um, mm. And I thought that Brighton really took good advantage of this. I mean, obviously, from Liverpool's point of view, got to understand in the context of the injuries, the rotation that's necessary... Uh, I think they made five changes from Leicester to Atalanta, and I think they made another six changes for the game this weekend. Midfield didn't look great. Also, Phillips and Williams are really far down the pecking order in terms of you know their choice at centre-back and right-back. And I thought that the way Connolly and Mope and Welbeck attacked that side, at that side, I thought they were really, did really well, did really were very positive. Phillips was dragged out of position one-on-one. Williams was dragged out of position, considered a penalty. Very, very smart attacking play. I think Liverpool did well to shore, to shore the whole thing up and, you know, to go ahead, Jota goal, let's not forget, was absolutely excellent. Ninth right. goal this season. But then you have all the VARs that we're talking about again. And yeah, I mean, technically, I, th- I think they were probably all correct decisions. Um, mm. I would say that, again, we're in the territory of no one can really define what clear and obvious is. I mean, if the referee is looking at a player getting a little bit of a kick in the box and mm-hmm. he's not given a penalty, 
is that clear and obvious or not? <laughs> um, right. So, and then if you apply that to say what happened to Traore at the Emirates, you'd, you'd wonder why that doesn't maybe qualify as a penalty. But you know what? That, that's what was given. And, and certainly given the way that the first half had gone, in which Liverpool really struggled, apart from that offside mm-hmm. Salah goal, to have anything resembling a shot on target. But Brighton could have had two goals. The penalty, which Mope did so badly on, and Connolly's shot, which he, he dragged wide, it probably... You know, it was a fair result, the one-one. Even if it was a bit, bit of a shock at the end, because you thought you had the points in the bag at that. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think you could also look, look at the way Brighton have been playing this season. They've been playing well and not getting the points. Look, remember, they absolutely busted Manchester United and somehow lost that game. Uh, they hit the woodwork like five or six times. So I, I think they, I think they fully deserved it. I think also. You know, Klopp has a valid point after the game when he's arguing about television again. And let's remember, mm. it didn't start this week. They started last week when he had a go after the uh, Leicester game, after they won 3-0, uh, when he was, uh, you know, talking about the whole Wednesday to Saturday morning thing. And I think maybe another thing that wound him up was, you know, they've done the fixtures for December this week, and he's got another 8 p.m. Wednesday to Saturday morning again. I think when he makes the point about, you know, some accommodation maybe being made for Liverpool um, mm. and, you know, the reactions is, look, look, you've signed a contract and stuff. Look, I think in the regular season, by, I think, quite early on in the season, you have your Premier League fixtures defined until the end of November. After this point, you have the European draws, and this is where fixtures do get reshuffled. So it doesn't necessarily get set in stone. In this particular season, we have seen that Premier League fixtures are getting done quite late. So I think you could take Europe into account. And also, for example, you never see Europa League teams from Thursday play on a Saturday. So right. I, th- I, think, I think you could accommodate this. Okay, Mark Ridley, though, makes the point Liverpool will benefit from extra rest from having an early kickoff on Saturday in their Champions League match with Ajax on Tuesday, which is now absolutely huge because Ajax are just two points behind them, and as are Atalanta. So the qualification is by no means assured. Daniel? Yeah, I, I just think that Klopp's gone at the, the wrong target. I mean, I, I do have sympathy with, with it because clubs in, in Europe and in other European leagues um, generally particularly towards the latter end of the competition, managers get irked because their their upcoming opponents have had an, often an extra day's rest before the game. Um, but that that's the reality of our broadcasting contracts is that Thursday teams don't have to play Saturday, but Tuesday and Wednesday teams fall into the, the natural order of picking, which is Sky get first pick and that's 4.30pm Sunday and BT get the second pick and that's naturally the 12.30 Saturday game because that's when their pick is. Um, a couple of seasons ago, I think BT's first pick was the, the 5.30 Saturday game. So it was a bit easier. Um, but if, you know, if Klopp has an issue with that... That would always exist. That, that, yeah, that it, would, it would, but it, it wouldn't be a first pick. So Liverpool right. being a, a big audience uh, naturally fall into a... I see, when, yeah. when Liverpool are playing a, a lesser opponent, they naturally fall into that second pick slot because they guarantee audience, but they're not a huge, huge game. But the other um, side of, of those of those contracts is the fact that it, it affords clubs like Liverpool with a spending power far beyond absolutely. any of their European counterparts. Yeah. I think it would it would make sense for if Klopp wants to for for clubs to negotiate that Wednesday night Champions League cannot be in the twelve thirty p.m. Saturday kickoff, but that will decrease slightly the value of the contract. Uh, my question would be um, how difficult it is for BT and Sky to swap slots because I'm pretty sure this has happened before. Uh, in the in a normal European season, I Am don't I wrong? know why would they want to. Well, so this, it this would have question. put Chelsea would have put Chelsea and and, and Spurs, well Spurs were <laughs> Europa League anyway, so they couldn't have played on twelve thirty mm. on Saturday this weekend. 
I mm. think it's 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 an issue, and and I know you're right to point out, Sasha. This started last week, but I I don't think if Liverpool had won that game one nil, I don't think he would have been so aggressive with his his points after the game. I think he was every every elite football manager is a pretty bad loser, and conceding a last minute goal is is a good way of bringing that out. I think. But he did do it after Leicester last week. When yes, they won exactly. Yeah. and I think his big thing last week was because he lost Cater to injury. This time he lost Milner in the previous game before that he lost Trent. So he seems to lose a game a player every game. But also, I think one thing that I think maybe they should have a word with each other is because if you look at the Liverpool City game, uh, you know people got only say sixty minutes out of, of action out of ninety because by the end the two teams were absolutely knackered. So hmm. I don't know. I think. I think maybe having a go at the guy interviewing you is probably not the best way about it, but maybe he just wants to be heard and he wants to make it public. Yeah, I, I think there are ways of doing it. And I think you're absolutely right to say that conceding a last-minute goal probably does, it, it might trigger it, not the most kind of emotionally intelligent way of addressing the issue. I thought Des Kelly handled it extremely well because it can't be easy to have a, a Premier League manager, particularly one as kind of charismatic and forceful of personality as, as, as Jurgen Klopp. Uh, coming at you. But anyway, a one win in four now for Liverpool, who of course were beaten the previous midweek by Atalanta at Anfield. But bigger than the drop points are the injuries. What is it, 10 players out now, Sasha? Trent, Gomez, Virgil van Dijk, Milner, Keita, Thiago, Shakiri, Ox, uh, Wilson, Elliot as well. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's about right. But I think, you know, the, 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 the two long-term absences are obviously van Dijk and Gomez. Um, Thiago has been absent for an indefinite amount of time, but I think it just disrupts the planning all the time. You've got people out for COVID, people out for injuries. Uh, you know, every, every game you lose someone, so you have to replan for the following game. So I just think the whole management of the side makes it very difficult. I think it's, it's a bit weird, but uh, you could say that against Atalanta, uh, Liverpool fielded a League Cup side. Uh, in the Champions League, which is which is completely crazy. I mean, they needed the point to get through, and now they've added themselves a lot of problems because had they beaten Atalanta, they're pretty much through. They can possibly rest place for two games, and now they possibly have these extra two games that they actually have to play properly, which is, mm-hmm. uh, given the current situation, uh, actually not a great outcome for Liverpool at all. Particularly when you look at the form that Ajax are in, they've been on an eight-game unbeaten run since... That narrow 1-0 defeat to Liverpool at the Amsterdam Arena, or the Johan Cruyff Arena, I should say. Seven wins and a draw in that time. Their latest victory coming this weekend, 5-0 over Emmen. Uh, how worried are you, Sasha? I think uh, defensively, uh, mm-hmm. Fabinho Matip should work. Uh, I really hope that Trent Alexander-Arnold might return, even though I, I think there's big doubts over that. Um Perhaps Milner tried, but I think fundamentally, uh, you know, Ajax would have to come at Liverpool uh, because they need the result more than Liverpool, I think. Um, and Liverpool just need the draw. I think it's good that Salah is going to have a little bit longer to recover from his, uh, from his COVID. And, uh, you know, at, at this rate also, every game he plays, Jota scores. So, I mean, what a signing he has been. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, I'm still reasonably confident because, you know, around the time that Liverpool won 1-0 away, it's most fortuitously, you know, Ajax was scoring lots of goals uh, anyway and Liverpool took just took the chances um, so I'm, I'm still pretty confident they can get a result and yeah let's not forget they only need to draw this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Dom, you wanted to address 
the issue of five substitutes. Just uh, last time I came on on this show, um, I put the case forward for for retaining three subs um, due to sort of retaining the competition in the league and, and looking at the depth of squads um, up and down the division. Now, it, it, it prompted a bit of a reaction on Twitter um, from a lot of Liverpool and Manchester United fans by the look of things. I, I'd just like to restate it again, really. I mean, I know, I know Klopp brought it up again post-match. I do think a lot of these managers who now who are finding resistance within the rest of the Premier League to, to changing to five subs are probably suffering from having used the, the five sub thing post lockdown at the end of last season as a as a tactical element to the game and, and a lot of managers haven't forgiven them for that. Um I think there was a moment against Sasha probably remember this. It was it was it Aston Villa at home where Liverpool used three in one triple change around the hour mark when the game was still goalless and brought on international players or something and, and, and steamrolled Villa for the last part of the game. And I imagine that Dean Smith is sitting there now thinking, well, I don't really want that to happen when I, when I go into games against teams that are jam-packed with international players. And I, I do think it all, will all boil down to, I know, I know it's, a, it's an exceptional season, very congested, but there is squad depth there. Whether that's under 23s or not, it's, it's affecting clubs up and down the division. And when you look at, uh, I had a chat with one of the uh, one of the guys who covers Liverpool um, prior to coming on. Trent Alexander Alexander Arnold missed eight minutes of Liverpool's six games before he got injured. Eight minutes of six matches, I and mean, that doesn't sound like uh, you'd, you'd imagine in a congested schedule that would put him close to a red zone. Um, James Milner started three in a week and goes off injured now, and it's you know prompting Jurgen Klopp to be angry. I think Gomez had played the third most number of minutes of a Liverpool player prior to the England get-together. I think it was something like 1,010 minutes. Now, a club like Liverpool, even with injury problems, I would suggest might be able to manage that better. It might be to the expense of stellar performances every week and maybe maybe the Premier League doesn't allow you to do that. Maybe that that is an argument. But I do think that everybody has to has to adapt to this season and that includes the big clubs and they shouldn't just because we know they're going to use it as tactical for tactical reasons as soon as it comes on I mean I think Jurgen Klopp used the, the example of he would have taken Andrew Robertson off uh, on Saturday yeah but he would have taken him off and he would have put on a, an international left back presumably to to take over from him um, so that is if you've got a tiring player that's sort of a tactical move isn't it is it not part of that as well does that not constitute a tactical move I I'm probably leaving myself open to all manner of criticism again from Liverpool supporters, but I would, I would, for the sake of the competition in the league, unless there's a, a, a clever way of doing it, whereby maybe two of your five sub- substitutes have to be under 23 players from your academy or something like that, which would allow a bit of progression of youth team players into the first team setup to gain minutes, which I can see a great logic to, I would stick with three. What I would use as a counter-argument to this is why is the rest of the Europe doing this and why is EFL doing this? Why are, for example, the big six effectively being held as the, as the guys who use this, who would be 
wielding you know a disproportional power of this i mean in germany in the bundesliga you have 36 clubs of course two divisions constitute one organization they've agreed to this and you know fc bayern there are about i think they're way ahead of everyone more than anyone is probably in the premier league um so it currently seems to be that there is a handful of clubs um in the premier league which are basically out of sync with the rest of leading european leagues uh which I understand the argument about the competitiveness, but why are the others agreeing to do this and the English, other English Premier League clubs not? Well, according to Jurgen Klopp, the majority of Premier League sides also agree with doing this, and he's not sure why nothing has come of a recent meeting which saw this this decision reached. Um, well, in fairness, if 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 fifteen managers are for it, then they'll win the vote. They'll get the mm. vote passed, won't they? I mean, they need fourteen, so. It becomes a redundant argument. Then I mean, it's, it, the, the guys, that are, the Chris Wilders um, out there, would, would would then be disappointed. Is there a case that just as the big six could handle this this crisis, this fixture crisis differently by maybe rotating more, that equally some of the other sides who say we don't have the squads to do it could actually handle it differently by getting those squads? Because there's no Premier League side that can't afford to run a 25 man squad at this point. No, that's 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 a fair point, and they are they are but a lot of them don't. I mean, in terms of senior players, anyway, a, a lot mm. of them are would have say twenty two, twenty three uh, players in their squad, and some of them are building from bigger, uh, from higher bases than others. I guess. I mean, the promoted teams might might struggle on that front. I, I do have sympathy with Jurgen Klopp, and I do have sympathy with the clubs competing in Europe because clearly they're going to have more fixtures. But by definition, those are also the clubs that will have the deepest quality of squad available to them um, and probably also have the proper elite academy systems as well. Daniel, you've gone really quiet. No, I, I, I agree with what Don said initially, which is that whether you agree with it or not, I think it's a it's a PR move from those clubs that are against it as much. I think it's a reaction to them feeling that they're being railroaded into it. You know, they had a vote before, they said no. Now the big clubs are kicked up a fuss again and they're saying, well, you're not just just by kicking up a fuss. We're not going to change our minds. Um, whether it's whether there's any element of the project big picture stuff to this, you know, this we're not going to be bullied into things by bigger clubs. I don't know, and and maybe some of those clubs are in danger of cutting off their nose to spite their face. But um, I think they feel that we've got along like this, and we're all in the same boat. And, and as Dom says, they've got bigger squads anyway. So this is how we'll deal with it. It. it one, the one thing it doesn't seem to have done really, maybe until Liverpool a bit on the weekend, is it doesn't really seem to have affected team selection. The one way you can rest a player if you're not allowed to make five substitutions is start a different player. And as Dom says, with those injuries that clubs have suffered, they've come because they've started four, five, six games in two weeks, which, mm. you know, maybe preemptively just rotate a little bit more. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I changed my mind on it and thought that it should come in. And now Dom's with his persuasive argument has almost talked me around again. I can guarantee that on Twitter tomorrow morning that will not come across as a persuasive argument. <laughs> yeah, and also I won't back you up on there either, so I'll stay very quiet. <laughs> I'll, I'll just be the one out there then. Um, and I, I think I think you could you could argue that you know, Liverpool have been forced to rotate, which, as I said, they've been doing very, very heavily. And, you know, the guys they have playing at the moment, Williams are tried back. He's like 19. Phillips is very much a sixth choice. Um, in in midfield, you have, again, you have the squad players like Minamino coming in. Um, and I think I think they've been doing it now much more than earlier in the season, perhaps. So, yes, having been forced into it. But then when you have players breaking down in the first few games, this is perhaps something that wasn't accounted for 
when they were judging how the season would go after the lack of preseason. So perhaps they're learning on the job as well. No easy answer to that one. We'll move on in which case. Uh, more Champions League and more Premier League after this. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Match day five of the Champions League coming up Tuesday and Wednesday. I bet you're looking forward to Dortmund against Lazio with Holland against uh, Immobile. And I mean, it's Holland, isn't it? And and also Shakhtar Real. Remember what happened when they met in Madrid? Shakhtar went there with about seven starters and managed to beat Real Madrid three two. Now there's the return match in Kiev. Real Madrid still not certain of their place in the last 16. They lost to Alaves this weekend. Hazard's out injured again. They've lost three of the last five home games in all competitions. This one's, of course, on the way. But all in all, Zidane says he's perplexed, doesn't understand what's going on. We'll see if we can shed any light on it when we preview the midweek action in uh, Tuesday's Totally Football Show European edition. Uh, Sasha, just while we got you here, though, let's have a word on the Russians. Three Russian sides in the Champions League for the first time ever uh, this season, but it's not gone well for them. For the last time ever uh, on this performance. Uh, yeah, they. I think, you know, when we're talking about clubs being tired, I think it just showed up just how physically impossible it is for, for the Russian clubs to, to handle all of this, uh, playing every three days with all, with all the travel, because their form in the league has completely fallen off as well. Uh, at the weekend, the three Russian clubs, Zenit, uh, Lokomotiv, and Krasnodar failed to score in the league against lowly opposition. CSKA uh, lost on Sunday. They're the other European side. And, you know, they're kind of top of the league. And they had two shots on target in Kazan against uh, Leonid Slutsky's Rubin. Um, and it's, for me, it just shows up just how weak uh, the league has become. And this is really, really bizarre because, you know, 2017-18 season was uh, Russian football's, you know, best one in Europe in terms of coefficient, I think 12.6. And I think this is it's important um, to make a distinction here. Without a historically big European side, you can get that sort of rating by getting quite a lot of clubs to the latter stages of the Europa League. This is where you pick up mm. your points. And, you know, I think to have one quarter finalist in Europa League in the current circumstances is pretty, probably pretty good. To have like four clubs like Russians did in 17-18 in the last 32 of Europa League is a good result. And then what happens? You get the World Cup and since then everything just falls apart. And I, I know there have been structural problems uh, you know, coming into it. You know, there have been the 2014, the collapse of the ruble, the economic sanctions. But I also think, you know, given how the clubs are financed, I think there's certain loss of interest from powers that be, you know, after the World Cup was done. Uh, so that now you are, you are, you're stuck in a situation where a league that was ranked, I think, top two or top six, they last two seasons, the performance is 20th in, the, in, 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 in Europe. And, you know, this doesn't, I don't see any signs of this improving because football is mediocre. The league is competitive because everyone is rubbish. And the European, uh, the European, and European, yeah, yeah, well, I, don't, I think with them, you've gone to probably 27. Um, and, it's just so embarrassing because in the group stages this season, they failed to win a single game. When yeah. they had the 17-18 season, I think European uh, Russian clubs played about 52 games. They won 27 of them. This year, they won two out of 20. I mean, it's just like, it's beyond embarrassing. So Champions League and Europa League group stages, Russian record or res- rec- record of Russian clubs is no wins, eight draws and eight, eight defeats. Yeah. As it stands, n- no club is set to go through, but... The one, one exception might be mm-hmm. Locomotive, right? Yeah, the, the, the one bright spark. I mean, okay. they... They host uh, Rebel Salzburg yeah. this midweek. They're currently two points behind Atletico Madrid, but Atletico Madrid are hosting Bayern. So a Locomotive win, if they could become the first Russian side to win a game in these 
European group stages, they could be heading into the last 16. Wow. It's an inter- interesting dynamic here as well because Bayern have already won the group after four games. They're so far ahead. Uh, mm. So it'll be interesting how, what sort of team they're fielding against Atletico. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lokomotiv has the only chance. Lokomotiv have been quite, you know, quite brave and quite smart. And I mean, they took on Bayern in Moscow, uh, losing only 2-1. They drew two games with Atletico. They've been really like the one competent team in, in, in Europe this season. So I think they're probably the best shot of going through. Well, you can see how Lokomotiv and all the Champions League sides get on in the goal show of course, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And Tuesday, before the goal show gets underway, we will be covering the Shakhtar-Real Madrid game. Uh, so crucial for uh, the uh, qualifying hopes of, of both sides, of course. After this, let's get back on to the Premier League. On this day, Dominic Fifield, it's the 30th of November uh, 2020. Do you know what happened on the 30th of November 1872? Uh, that was England-Scotland, was it? Yes, very good, actually. The first ever international, the first ever official international football match. There had been one or two games played previously, but they weren't recognised due to the somewhat unofficial nature of the squad selection. But when England played Scotland at the west of Scotland, cricket club ground in Partick, it was the first ever official international match. A crowd of around 4,000, because they were in Tier 1, uh, witnessed a nil-nil draw, 4,000 including, no doubt, a small but persistent group of men with sombreros and a horn section playing the great escape. Uh, the Scots uh, had a goal disallowed in the first half after the umpires decided that the ball had cleared the tape that was used to represent the crossbar in those days. Different times, different football. Mm. Earlier this season, um, for some reason, I, I ended up in Paddington Old Cemetery standing at the grave of Cuthbert John Ottaway, who was England's first football captain, who, who captained the team that day, 150 years, 100 and how many years ago was it? 148. 148 years ago. He captained the team that day, 148 years ago. And it, it, you mentioned that the sort of anomaly that, that they were playing at the West of Scotland cricket ground. Well, Ottaway once shared a 150-run opening partnership with W.G. Grace in a gentleman versus players match. He played for Kent and Middlesex. Well, this carried on for quite a while, didn't it? The whole thing about football and cricket, uh, depending on the season, into the 50s. I also have a thing. Do you know where the first football match, according to Association Rules, was played at all? Is it Maidenhead? No, it's not Maidenhead. It's 1863, a place called Limes Field in Mortlake. It's no longer there. There is just a road. It was next door to the house where Ebenezer Cobb Morley uh, lodged at the time. And it was Barnes against Richmond and it finished nil-nil. Crikey, Totally Sancho. football show, finger on the pulse. <laughs> <laughs> All the <Yeah>. latest stories. <laughs> Daniel, you got any sepia-tinted uh, on this days that you'd like to throw in? Yeah. I know, I know retro's fashionable now, but I'm not sure they meant Victorian times. <laughs> I, I find that stuff fascinating myself. When I looked up this game, I must admit I was a little disappointed because in my mind, one of these early games with Scotland saw the English getting beaten by double figures after the Scottish unveiled a new tactic they had called passing. Yeah, but couldn't they only pass backwards? Maybe that was the problem. I'm not sure. A rugby style. Right. Apparently uh, some of the English players warmed up smoking pipes. It's very okay. sick Harry Enfield. <laughs> quite, yeah, very much so. Maybe Jack Grealish could bring that back. I quite like that. <laughs> uh, Jack Grealish, who on this 30th of November uh, 2020 uh, will be in action himself. He'll be at the London Stadium 
taking on West Ham with Villa, if you, if selected, of course. One of two games taking place this Monday. Uh, the other being Leicester against Fulham. Leicester were beaten last weekend by Liverpool. Fulham, who were beaten by Everton and pretty much everyone else they've played. They've lost seven of their last nine. They did look good in the second half against uh, Carlo Ancelotti's side, but it does look a sizable order for them uh, to head to the King Power and stop a Leicester team who are hell-bent on climbing back to the top of the Premier League pile. Mm. Villa were up there, of course, before they've had three defeats in their last four, though. Pretty interesting to see how that goes away against West Ham. Weekend started back on Friday at Selhurst Park, Dom. Uh, Crystal Palace losing 2-0 to Newcastle. Are you going to have a rant here? No, not really. No, I, I, I think we knew what was coming, really. Um, Did you? But Newcastle were bottom of every attacking metric. I, I heard yeah, it on this show. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think they'd, they'd lose. And in fairness, if that had finished nil-nil, mm-hmm. as it was after 89 minutes, uh, I don't think there would have been any complaints from either manager. They would have taken that. But it was it was just... <laughs> Palace without Wilfred Zaha are a different beast. We know this. Um, they, they experimented a bit in terms of their forward line, tried Jeff Lee Schlupp. I, I do think if, you, if you're going to do something like that, and he didn't play badly at all, he was actually one of the, the better players on the pitch, but if you do something like that and you've got two international players, even if those two international strikers are Michi Batshuayi and Christian Benteke sitting on the bench, then that tactic has to work and it, and it didn't. So I, I think there was a sense of deflation in as much as the tactical switch that Roy Hodgson made didn't work. I actually thought that the difference between the two teams was Callum Wilson because Callum Wilson got got a chance and he put it away and there was nobody else really on the pitch, even Joe Linton, uh, who scored the second goal subsequently, but there was no one else on the pitch who was going to be that ruthless as as Callum Wilson was. And, and if you spend £20 million on a player and pay them six figures a week, as I'm sure they'll be doing, you get a certain calibre of striker and he proved it with a good clinical finish. As you say, a lot of missed chances, which I think is, has been a theme of a lot of matches this weekend in the Premier League. And certainly was the case in the Champions League last midweek. And possibly it's a, a factor of the number of games that the, the people are playing and the, and the tiredness that's, that's beginning to envelop some of the squads. Phil, uh, of tweets by Phil, tweeting, Newcastle have only scored 12 league goals this season. Six of them have come in the 84th minute or later. How is this possible? Well, Opposition gets bored. <laughs> that was my well, that theory was, last week. Yeah, so. Daniel's attention. <laughs> right, okay. uh, Newcastle weren't the only goal shy team rediscovering their scoring touch, though, this weekend because Man City were at it too, piling up five against Burnley, which came as a huge surprise given that uh, they'd scored that exact number in each of the last three visits that Burnley had made to the Etihad. Uh, among the many talking points that have kind of emerged after this, Riyad Mahrez getting his first hat-trick for City, Benjamin Mundy getting his first goal uh, for the club, was a, a little bit of confusion about what's going on with Aguero, who now seems to have Ledley King's knees or something because he comes back, does 14 minutes and then disappears again. Uh, are we now very much at the end game vis-a-vis him and Man City, Daniel? Yeah, I think so, um, because I think he will want uh, a contract-length um, that City probably won't be prepared to go to. I don't, you know, they would probably be prepared to offer him a one-year deal um, with a view to either buying another striker in next summer or um, bringing Gabriel Jesus through as their, their number one striker, if that's what they want. Um, I think he will probably want a, a two- or three-year deal, and I think that might be that 
City have myriad problems, as we mentioned last week, but so many of them can be solved by by signing an an absolutely top draw striker. So Gabriel Jesus is good, but he's not the best City could have. Um, and that would cover up so many of the sins of their defending and the lack of pressing because the chance conversion was good at the weekend, but it isn't normally. I also think um, they were helped out by some bizarrely awful defending by Burnley. Um, I, I don't even know what, what, what sort of formation they were trying to play. Were they trying to take a game to City? So, I mean, they got torn to pieces. Um, and again, they got lucky that two goals were disallowed by VAR. But uh, I think also good boon for City is that Fernandinho's returned uh, and played a half uh, at centre-back. I also thought um, there was bizarre assessment on match of the day of the Stones' performance. I mean, you're playing against a terrible team. Um, and also another good thing that was going to help City, they got Fulham and West Brom coming up at home as well. So I think they can get their goal scoring back into action because I think this is pretty much what this game was used for because they it was foregone conclusion, I think, before it even kicked off. Even with the five goals, Sash, you'll be intrigued to know that this is still Manchester City's worst goals tally since 2010. Quite remarkable. All right, so Burnley remain down in the bottom three, not quite as badly off as Sheffield United, who are very much at the sharp age with a point, which is you know what Blades have when they, they've been beaten a lot, to re-echo my uh, foundry motif from last weekend. Uh, this following a 1-0 defeat by West Brom. Crikey, this had 39 shots in it. It must have been incredibly exciting to watch. Was anyone witness to this? I watched it. I Go really on then, Dom. It, I thought it was a, it's obviously a really... It was a huge game for both those teams. West Brom hadn't won a match either going into it. Um, and it, it, I mean, the, the chances that were passed up were quite something. I mean, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant performance from Sam Johnston again in the West Brom goal, which which um, which obviously contributed majorly to it. But quite how Lise Mousse misses in the in stoppage time at the end just to level it up is is it was staggering. It makes makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I, Sheffield United are just a, a really strange team at the moment because in within games they they play really nice stuff like they did last year. I mean, when you, you watch Bulldog getting down the right and cutting into the box and putting putting dangerous crosses in, and you just think, how is this this side saddled with this wretched scoring record? And it's not as if they don't have strikers. Um, they they have forwards on their books. They've they've scored four goals in in ten games this season. It's absolutely remarkable, considering they ha- they have so many different options up front. And and I think James, you, you you when you said earlier that a lot of clubs are are missing chances at the moment. At the start of this season, we were all talking about how there were bags of goals in games and right. defenders were all over the place. You've almost got to the point now where there there are swathes of forwards at some clubs. And my own club is in there, where they have absolutely no confidence whatsoever. They're completely devoid of any belief in front of goal. They're good players, some of these guys, and yet they're snatching at chances. There's an anxiety there. It's it's just eating away at them. And and unfortunately for Sheffield United, that's exactly where they are at the moment. They had an XG of three point three in this game, which is the highest XG of any Premier League side that then failed to score a goal. Since Arsenal against Southampton in February 2016, they had 21 shots, five on target. If you're in the market for Sheffield United stats, you might also enjoy the fact that they are the only Premier League side yet to keep a clean sheet, but despite this, have actually conceded fewer goals this season than Liverpool. This is the first time that Chris Wilder has struggled in his managerial career, isn't it? There's been an upward 
trajectory into the top flight. He's been getting promoted, promoted, promoted. And this is the first time he finds himself in this situation. Um, so I think it'd be interesting to understand what's happening there internally because, I mean, publicly, you know, he sort of picked on Klopp, but he's, you know, remained relatively composed, I think, given the predicament. But also maybe he knows that uh, the border behind him because at this rate, you know, one point in 10 games, it's pretty awful. Mm. Uh, one more game for us still to address from this weekend. And yes, Leeds fans, it is Marcelo Bielsa's sides. 1-0 victory away at Everton. Uh, we'll get on to that very shortly. First of all, though, let's check in on our pal, marooned there in his odyssey into the world of odds, Lee Price. Hello, listeners. It's December. It's been a tough year. I've had a weird couple of weeks. So I'm going to do something that I probably shouldn't in any situation. And that's sing. I'll apologise sincerely in advance to anyone with a sense of tune. Here we go. Santa baby, just keep the table looking messy for me. Been an awful crap year, Santa baby. Please teach FIFA how to get handball right. Jurgen Kloppy wants 54 substitutes to not chef you. But they won't stay up for you, dear Santa baby. So change the rules and turn Wilder white. Think of all the goals we've missed. Think of all the checking VAR screens we've witnessed. Next year could be oh so good. If you shut down that stocky park sh- Russian Roman is watching games live from his yacht, the Toff. I've been on my sofa all year, Santa baby, so keep the goals coming tonight. Yeah, I warned you, but I'm not really that sorry. Um, I better say some better numbers, so here we go. Leicester are odds on to beat Fulham, makes sense. West Ham are the favourites to beat Villa, also probably just about fair enough. And the home double is just over 2-1. to one. Bye-bye. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, some podcasts you should know about. Totally Football League shows out on Monday addressing such diverse topics as uh, Wayne Rooney taking sole charge of Derby for their 1-1 draw with Wickham. Derby's still bottom and the only club in the championship yet to win at home. Probably there'll be some FA Cup news there. The second round played this weekend and Marine making their way through to the third round for only the second time in their history with an incredible late, late, late 120th minute winner against Haven and Waterlooville. Totally Scottish football show will be out on Tuesday. Not sure if Neil Lennon will still be Celtic manager by the time uh, that hits your ears. Uh, They had their first domestic cup defeat in four years, Celtic. This weekend, beaten at home by Ross County on Sunday in the League Cup. Uh, Curiously, the last team to beat Celtic in a cup match four years ago was Ross County. Crikey. The offside rule WSL edition is also out on Tuesday, as is the one we mentioned earlier on, the European edition of the Totally Football Show, previewing the Champions League action and, of course, looking back on all the big things that have happened over the weekend. Uh, We haven't talked yet about Everton and their 1-0 defeat at home to Leeds. If you like shots, you'll have enjoyed this one as well. 38 shots between the two sides. Leeds' first ever uh, Premier League win away at Everton. The last win at Goodison coming in August 1990. Now, there's a lot of excitement about Rafinha, who got his first goal. I think it was his first goal for Leeds here. Uh, But Calvin Phillips, perhaps the most noteworthy performance here. 
Uh, his his game described as a clinic in how to play as a defensive screener, but he, he did much more than that as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He's, he's becoming almost a, very quickly became a forgotten man for England in that he was picked in the October international break and then in the November break wasn't available. And so, yeah, he just kind of, everyone went, well, they've got Harry Winks, we've got James Ward-Prowse. And, and actually he is arguably England's most informed central midfielder um, when fully fit this season. Man, he plays a, he plays in the uh, this pressing system which really tests central midfielders you know there's some there's some midfielders where you, that, or some players I think that sometimes come into England squads because they've done well at clubs and it doesn't really fit within the England setup Calvin Phillips is tested every week the fitness is tested the you know the the composure on the ball is tested the tackling is tested he has to do everything and he does it um I, I love watching Leeds they've had 25 shots against Arsenal um, they had 23 against Everton they scored three times at Anfield I just I love their their um, it, it kind of epitomises the dogmatic approach of Bielstra I suppose in that we will play how we want to play and we won't it's not that we won't care what the opposition do because there's a heck of a lot of research that goes into it but the way they impose their football on, on other teams is seriously impressive you kind of forget that they are still a promoted club you know, they're playing as if you know, Wolves. That that Wolves season is very much their their blueprint, I think. And I don't see any reason why they can't finish top eight if they if they keep playing as they are at the moment. That you look at the games they've played. You know, they've played five of last season's top eight plus Everton and Villa, who are kind of the surprise packages of this season. And they've only played ten games, so they've got a nice run coming up. And yeah, I, it's just an obvious thing to say now, but they're so good to watch these teams. They're just two points off the top eight as it stands, as we mentioned earlier. Very, very congested in the middle of the Premier League. As for Everton, who are they exactly at this point? I'm, I'm very confused. I think they're a team that, that ha- they're a very good first team. And as soon as one, maybe two, but sometimes even just one of that team is missing, I think it looks very obvious, particularly at fullback, particularly at central midfield. Luca Dean if, being out for this one. Yeah, exactly. And it's huge. I mean, their they're, they're kind of cheat code for the first few weeks was... Hammers gets it, plays it out to the left wing to right. Luca Dean, who crosses it in, and they can't do that. And it looks, it looks like they run out of ideas quite quickly without them. I mean, for me, it like it, it sort of felt like a ding dong game. But when I actually looked at it, the, like Lee said, by far the best chances, and they should have completely run away for, for, with it. And I think it's interesting. I think certain games seem to in certain games certain Leeds players seem to have more freedom because I think in this particular Harrison and Rafinha really were absolutely everywhere whilst you know Phillips and Klee were kind of holding the overall shape um, and I think Everton like really couldn't cope with these two players popping up all over the shop um, and I think also from Everton's point of view again I think Pickford had a decent game but he got his foot, footwork all wrong for the winner uh, he starts adjusting his position just as Rafinha winds up to shoot and it's just completely the wrong way to do it and he also got caught in no man's land uh, in the first half when one of the Leeds players hit the post so again a key moment Pickford lets them down as well so it's I, I mean I don't know what, what Everton are going to go with this I'm really surprised um, by the drop off uh, they have one like one player is missing like Dean mm. at the moment when Richarlison was out suddenly the uh, Calvert-Lewin couldn't really function properly the whole system fell apart and, it's, um, and I'm not I, I'm, I don't know what they're gonna, what's going to happen to them in the next month because their December is actually really difficult Right well they've got a Burnley uh, away up next you look at uh, the results so far this season they won their first seven in all competitions since then though They've only won one of their last six, and that was Fulham. And even that was a bit of a squeak. So, yeah, uh, some tough games coming up, including uh, Leicester and Chelsea and Arsenal and Man United. 
Uh, and they have a League Cup in there as well. That, yeah, that's okay, the League Cup, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, and Man City too. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's a terrible, terrible run of fixtures. Indeed. Wow. All righty. Well, those are all the things we'll, we'll be finding out as the weeks roll by. But that wraps it up for this edition of the Totally Football Show. Don't forget, we've got the Euro crew along on Tuesday morning. So hopefully you'll be joining us for that. For now, it's many, many thanks to Sasha and Dom and Dan for being with us this evening. And producer Charlie for working hard through the night to bring this show to you, listener. Have yourselves a great week and we'll catch up with you soon on the Totally Football Show. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.